This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, September the 16th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Sometimes I'm my own fader switch and I can just fade right into the horns. Coming up on the show today... It's weekly news panel time. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta will be here. Today we'll explore the results of the conservative leadership race and Pierre Polyev's resounding win. We'll also contemplate Ontario's new long-term care policy and their efforts to free up ER capacity. And we stay in the medical world as we discuss paying for blood plasma as a way to increase supply in the country. You'll also hear from Michael McNeely later in the show, and Greg David will stop by to wrap up the week. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. Ukrainian authorities have found a mass burial site near a recaptured city in the country's northeast. Karen Shamas files this report. The grave was discovered close to Izium in the Kharkiv region. Russian forces left Izium a little more than a week ago as Ukrainian troops successfully reclaimed swaths of territory in the region. AP journalists visited the site walking past hundreds of wooden crosses, most of them marked only with numbers, no names. Ukrainian soldiers surveyed the site with metal detectors. A Ukrainian serviceman known as Kuvalda explained, If it bleeps on the place where our brothers are lying, that means that the enemy may have left something like an explosive substance, a grenade that could be thrown into a grave. Izium resident Yuri Kochatenko remembered the Russian invasion of his town. His wife was killed by a cluster bomb. We fell down. I wasn't hurt, but she was wounded in the heart. The shrapnel went straight through her. I'm Karen Chama. Yesterday, we found ourselves talking a little bit about cybersecurity. Well, here's a follow-up story for you that broke last night. Uber's network has been breached by a hacker. Todd Ant has the story. Uber said late Thursday that it reached out to law enforcement after a hacker apparently breached its network. The intrusion led the company to take some of its internal systems offline. Cybersecurity blogger Sam Curry, who communicated with the hacker, described it as, quote, full intrusion. And the New York Times reported that employees were told to stay off the company's internal messaging platform, Slack. The person who claimed responsibility for the hack told the New York Times that they gained access through social engineering by sending a text message to an Uber worker claiming to be a tech employee and persuading them to hand over their password. Todd Ant, ABC News. Let's come back to Canada, the economy, and the housing market. The Canadian Real Estate Association says last month's total home sales dropped by 25% since last August. Prices themselves were only down 1% from July. Toronto broker Devel Morrison explains that buyer and seller expectations have become quite complex. They're saying, hey, but my neighbor with a more inferior property to mine got X amount. So, of course, I want more. And they don't really seem to understand that, hey, wait a second, this is a different market right now than what your neighbor dealt with. You're going to get less. 
and predictably rising interest rates are cooling the market. Let's look abroad to some international economy where Germany's economy minister says the group of seven major economies have agreed to take a tougher stance toward trade with China. Charles de Ledesma has the details. After a two-day meeting with fellow G7 officials, Minister for Economic Affairs and Climate Protection Robert Hayback has told reporters discussions about China are part of an effort to ensure high international trade standards and to prevent Beijing from using its economic might to steamroll other nations. Hayback, referring to Germany's own position on China, says the naivety toward China is over, adding the time when one could say trade no matter what, regardless of the social or humanitarian standards, is something we shouldn't allow ourselves anymore. Germany wants the EU to establish a more robust trade policy toward China. I'm Charles de Ledesma. And as I do every day, let's get to a couple of stories regarding climate change. Tropical storm Fiona is on a path to threaten the Virgin Islands in Puerto Rico this weekend. Reporter Rob Marciano is tracking the storm. Just days away from the five-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria. This is not that big a storm, but it is formidable, and it's heading right to the island. Right now, about 800 miles from San Juan. It's growing in size and intensity and moving westerly quickly. So, tropical storm warnings and watches have been posted that do include Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Fiona is expected to produce a total rainfall of 7 to 15 centimeters. And let's stay with the climate change file for one more story. A congressional report has found that climate change jeopardizes health care services in the United States. Norman Hall explains. Medical centers around the country say that fires, flooding, heat waves and other extreme weather are increasingly jeopardizing medical services, damaging health care facilities and forcing patients to flee their hospital beds. That's according to findings released in a report from the House Ways and Means Committee majority of the 63 trade associations, hospital systems, and community health centers that responded to the questionnaire say they've experienced at least one extreme weather event at some point in the last five years. The weather disasters force closures or evacuations that cost millions of dollars. Norman Hall, Washington. And just FYI, looking ahead to Tuesday's show, we'll be speaking with researcher Dr. Sébastien Jodouin about the impact of climate change on people with disabilities. One more story for you, and this one's from the Let's Try and Make You a Little Bit Smarter file. A new study finds that sperm whales across the Pacific Ocean have unique cultures and dialects. The whales use a series of clicks called CODAS to communicate, and after pooling acoustic data from 23 locations in the world, a team of scientists identified seven sperm whale vocal clans across the Pacific. The study's lead author, Dr. Taylor A. Hirsch, says the research shows that sperm whales themselves are using these CODAS as a symbolic mark of which group they belong to. I think all sperm whales speak the same language, you know, but I think it is that these different groups have their different dialects or their different accents. So, you know, if you think about in Canada versus the U.S., if you had a person and they just heard someone speaking English, you might not know right away where they're from, but as soon as someone says A, you know, then you're like, oh, it's probably someone from Canada. Uh, clicks to form sperm whale clicks. Is there a potential remake of Mean Girls that we could make in the Pacific Ocean with sperm whales? Just saying, spitballing here on a Friday. Maybe Greg David can help me greenlight that one later in the show. The study also finds sperm whales that speak different dialects do not socialize, even though they share the same waters. 
So even a class hierarchy amongst sperm whales. Let's get to our daily polls at AMI-audio. Not, no, oh, darn it, that's two more dollars out of my pocket. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. I think I'm up to $12 or $14 uh, since we did some rebranding here. So that's going right in the bucket. We still haven't decided what charity I'm giving that to at the end of the month. But uh, $14 at least is going somewhere if I keep saying the words AMI-audio. Not allowed to say that unless I'm promoting Joita's show, the Pulse on AMI Audio, or the Neutral Zone on AMI Audio. But when I'm talking about the daily polls, Dave, you've got to get it right. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Thursday, we asked you what style of headphones do you prefer? 31% of you said in-ear. 62% of you said no preference. 0% of you said bone conduction. Oh, I think we have a typo here in my script. Eliza, I need to borrow your eyes. Eyes, Liza. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, guys, can we put that back on the screen? Or is, is, is the screen yeah, of a typo as it. well? Uh, so we have in-ear, 31%. No preference, 62%. No, no, that's the typo. Oh. That's the typo. Yeah, we have oh, a typo here. Okay, that's going to get... <laughs> you know what? You know what? Take the graphic down. We'll sort that out. I'll give you the polls. I'll give you the poll results a little bit later in the show. But let's get to what James wrote in. Sorry, Eliza. Thank you for being my Eliza. I appreciate it. Um, James writes in, I would use in-ear and over-ear headphones if it is set up for hard of hearing, but I used Bluetooth connection for hearing aids. That's something that came up a couple times talking to folks yesterday, talking about those who may use an assistive hearing device, having to make particular accommodations based on the headphone they're using. And if your your hearing aid is Bluetoothed up, can you get more Bluetooth involved in your life, more Bluetooth hanging out? So yeah, thank you for everyone who uh, shared that perspective on us today. We appreciate it. Today's daily poll also having to do with technology at Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How often do you upgrade your technology? Of course, the new iPhone comes out today, the iPhone 14. We've talked about it maybe almost too much on the show. Do you upgrade your technology regularly, rarely, or only when my stuff breaks? I'm probably somewhere between rarely and only when my stuff breaks. Sometimes I'm a little bit preemptive, but usually... It's when something breaks, when I'm finally making moves, or appears to be on the verge of breaking. Let's find out what Alex Smythe has to say about this. Alex, when it comes time to upgrade technology, how often do you do that? Yeah, I think I'm in the same camp as you are, Dave, where it's either rarely or only when my stuff breaks. Um, ironically, though, my uh, personal cell phone is kind of getting on in years. It's a Galaxy S8, so it came out in, like, 2017, which, you know, in the uh, age of a phone is actually quite quite old. So I'm actually looking at upgrading potentially, uh, whether it's going to be a, the new shiny iPhone or something else compatible uh, along those lines. But yeah, I, I would say I'm never the type that's going to rush out and try to replace it right away just because there's a new version of something uh, that came out. I like to do my research. I like to make sure, okay, the, what I'm, whatever I'm going to get, I'm going to have it for at least three, four, five, six years, mm -hmm. or that's my my plan to have uh, for that long. Like I had got, I got a MacBook that's uh, coming up on ten years old. I have a gaming laptop that's at least like seven, eight years old. So I I like to take care of my technology, my gear, and and if I treat it well, it treats me well, and it can keep going for a longer period of time because it's expensive replacing, especially electronics, every couple of years. Mm -hmm. I don't get people who are able to do it on a regular basis. That's right. Even if you talk about sort of the lower cost phones, like even the lower cost 
new phones or the budget brand phones, it's still like five, 600 bucks, right? Like that's still a lot of money to go out of your pocket if you want to, if you want to upgrade your stuff every two years. Absolutely. And, and now they're starting to make these, like, for instance, with phones, they're starting to make contracts where after the two year contract, you can trade it in. So they incentivize people to want to constantly upgrade in that way. But for me, I like to own the stuff that I have. I mean, Same. It, it's just one of those things. I would be so paranoid about something happening to the phone if I know I have to give it back in two years. It's like, oh, well, if it, you know, if something happens to it, I own it, I can try to repair it myself or it's it's on me. It's not like, oh, I got to try to slide it back into the, the uh, kind of, the uh, phone dealer would be like, yeah, nothing happened. Don't look at the screen. It's perfectly fine, you know? <laughs> uh, I'm just going to give the results of yesterday's poll very quickly. Andrea Delanerol, our senior producer, swooped in and shared the correct uh, typing with me. So we'd ask you about a preferred style of headphone. 31% of you said in-ear. 62% of you said over-ear. Uh 0% said bone conduction, and 7% said no preference. All right, let's come back to today's daily poll, going over to Eliza. Eliza, you're hip. You're with it. How often are you upgrading your technology? Well, I am sadly in the same boat as you all. I would love, love to be a person who regularly replaces my electronics. I am not that person at all. I hold on to my electronics until <laughs> they are absolutely non-usable, um, I'm very impressed Alex has kept his uh, MacBook for 10 years. I am at eight years with mine, and the screen is melting. The battery <laughs> oh, is <no>. slowly <laughs> expanding and exploding. So, you know, some would say it, it has come to a point where I need to replace my laptop. You, you might be right on the precipice there, Eliza. Just You're close. Bit, but I'm holding on. Until the day I turn on my laptop and it doesn't turn on, that will be the day I get a new one. Yeah, I bought an iMac in 2007, and I hung on to that thing, oh my gosh, 2016, 2017, 2018, similar deal, but it was it was essentially garbage by the yeah. end. Like it, like that's all it was. It was just garbage by the oh, end. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't want to replace it because I was like, ah, my phone can do it most works. things. I have a computer at work. Why would I need to worry about my computer at home? Yeah, I am so afraid of my laptop breaking. I literally I don't use it at all anymore. And what's okay. why don't I just buy a new one? That's the question. I'm I don't so know. afraid of my technology that I will not use it, but I will not replace it either. Yeah, makes I, a lot of sense. I, huh? Eliza, I love taking this glimpse inside your brain. Thank you for that. Anytime. That's Eliza Rocco <laughs> answering our daily poll, which you can do at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Uh, our our TV technical producer, Bruce Beclarian, just chimed into the group chat. He said, the charity that I can donate to is the Bruce Beclarian Lunch Fund. I don't know if that's a registered charity. We'll have to check with uh, Charity Intelligence Canada on that one. Let's go back to Alexander Smythe, or Alex Smythe. Sorry, Alex, I did that to you again. You can call me David once or twice if you want to. Alex has the national weather updates. I'll forgive you this time, Dave, but as soon I'm going to start taking it personally. Uh, this is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with showers possible late morning and this afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour and a high of 16. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly sunny with clouds rolling in later and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour as well with a high of 18. In Montreal, Quebec, it's clearing clouds and sunshine with a high of 19. In Ottawa, Ontario, 
Some mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers and a high of 18. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a high of 24. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, there's a rainfall warning in effect as showers and possible thunderstorms affect the area. And upwards of 100 millimeters of rain is expected over the next couple of days, so be sure to watch out for that. And there's a high of 14. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with rain expected to start in the morning and a high of 15. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy, a high of 19. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers later this afternoon and 22 is the high. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with clouds starting to roll in in the afternoon and 20 is the high there. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny and a high of 18. In Vancouver, BC, it's mainly cloudy and hazy with scattered showers ending this afternoon in a high of 17. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy with possible showers early this morning in a high of 16. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Alex, I tell you what, if I keep calling you Alexander, we can add that to the $2 fine for me messing up branding. So even this one that I just got wrong, $16 up to a charity that we're going to figure out by the end of the month. So anytime I call Alex Alexander, unless it's facetiously, unless it's preemptively facetiously, we're going to add $2 to the Dave Brown fine bucket. How does that sound, Alex? Yeah, that sounds good. And then, you know, I can always uh, repay the favor every now and then uh, with, with a couple of Davids. So, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of puts me on edge whenever you, you call me Alex. Oh, no. I'm messing up some way. Our, uh, our boss, John Melville, calls me David, and I allow him to do that because he's our boss. But yeah. uh, he is in very elite company that gets to call me David. It's basically my brother-in-law, my sister, yeah. my mom, and uh, a couple girl, a couple ex-girlfriends. I, I allowed that one as well. But, uh, but no. As long as you don't start calling me Xander, we're going to be okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to add that one to the file as well. <laughs> Alex, thanks for this, buddy. We'll talk to you later in the show. Sounds good. That's Alex Smythe. He had the weather update. Coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel and explore the results of Pierre Polyev's conservative leadership win, resounding conservative leadership win. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday. That means it is news panel time. Let's welcome into the show our panelists, Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. I say good morning to you, Michelle. How are you? Morning, Dave. I'm well. Hope, well. hope you are too. I'm very, very good. Nice to chat with you once again. I missed our chat last Friday and Monday, and I've been told not to quite say hello to Joita just yet. So let me intro our first story, and then we'll say a big good morning to Joita. New conservative leader Pierre Poiliev addressed his caucus for the first time since winning leadership of the party in a landslide victory. Poiliev put a large focus on cost of living. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister. If you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today 
that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. He laid out what his priority will be in the short term as leader of the party. But there will be no compromise on this point. Conservatives will not support any new tax increases, and we will fight tooth and nail to stop the coalition from introducing any. Poliev also reflected on what it means to have opportunity. I want every single Canadian to have the opportunity that I had, to come from modest beginnings, but to work hard every day, to make sacrifices, to be responsible, and to have all of those virtues pay off as they realize their dreams in their country, a country with a small government and big citizens, where the state is servant and the people are the masters. I used the word landslide before, so let's put a little bit of context on that with some numbers. Poliev captured nearly all of the country's 338 ridings in the leadership contest and picked up nearly 70% of the popular vote. I can now say good morning to Joita Gupta, and I'll ask her the first question. So, Joita, good morning. Good morning, Dave. Uh, Joita, what, what does the resounding nature of this result suggest to you about Poliev's support within the party? Well, it says a couple of things. It says that he has overwhelming support, uh, especially within the caucus, and he has won the largest victory since the Conservative Party was created in 2003. It might surprise uh, people to learn that he actually has a larger victory than Stephen Harper did uh, in his leadership contest. And of course, Stephen Harper went on to become the prime minister of the country. And just to pick up on some of the things that you were talking about, Dave, he not only picked up 68% of the points, but 70% of the popular vote. And what that tells us is that, uh, according to the point system, Polyev has support across the country and that he also has support within his party because, you know, the caucus is, with few exceptions, generally backing him up. I think one of the things that's really telling Dave and Michelle is the fact that Pierre Polyev has been instrumental in bringing a lot of new people into the party. So the party membership actually swelled to 670,000 people, which is the largest it's ever been. If you rewind to about 2020 in that leadership contest, about 270,000 people were eligible to vote. Now it's ballooned to 670,000. So there you can see it's all doubled, nearly tripled. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'd say it's entirely due to Pierre Polyev, but I think it's fair to say it's largely driven by Pierre Polyev. So you're seeing someone who's really managed to mobilize the rank and file of the party, but also enjoys a great deal of support within conservatives across the country. I do want to talk about his following in a moment, but I also want to give Michelle an opportunity on this one. Michelle, this, unlike the last couple of leadership races, was settled on the first ballot, resoundingly on the first ballot. There was no backroom deals or bargaining going on. This was a clear-cut victory. What do you make of the nature of the win. Yeah, you guys are tapping directly into my brain. Joey didn't said a lot of what I would have liked to flag here. But yeah, my big takeaway here is that the game has now changed. At the conservative leadership level, there's been a lot of, of drama the past couple of years. Like you pointed out, Dave, the past couple of leadership contests were, were back and forth affairs, both times with a bit of a surprise winner coming out of it. Um, the first time around, you know, Peter McKay was widely considered the front runner, and then Andrew Shear emerged on top. Uh, Aaron O'Toole was not considered to be the front runner for the longest time. He won. Uh, both times, those did not end particularly well based on uh, 
if you ask Conservative Party operatives, for, for one thing. This time you have a very different scenario, and I think the membership drive really is the key thing here. You have a person who is highly polarizing, but who obviously has extremely broad appeal for those who do like his message and his methods. And this is a guy who has managed to greatly increase the, the base of the party, the membership numbers within the party, this will have financial consequences that will serve the party really well as they go on for the next couple of years. And now they have someone with the clearest mandate yet since the party was formed, like Joita said. So I, I do think that the wind is at their back at this point now that they've managed to round this corner. Mm-hmm. Guys, I think based on the answers we all just gave, we don't need to dwell on this too much. But there was a news story this week about Quebec MP Alain Ray, who removed himself from caucus after the results. Now, he was an Erno tool ally. He also backed Jean Charest in the leadership race. Michelle, is there anything to read into this departure or is this to be expected? I'm not that surprised. Um, of the Throughout the caucus, he had quite a lot of support, but it is worth noting that the 10 Quebec Conservative MPs all backed Charest, who was their former uh, premier, even though Quebec, uh, when the actual voting results came in, Quebec backed Poilievre, yeah. but the caucus members did not. So I'm not personally that surprised. When you see a guy who has historically backed Poilievre rivals, uh, specifically Charest, who was more diametrically opposed than O'Toole even was, um, I'm not too, too shocked to see this because... Like I said before, Poilievre is a polarizing figure. There are going to be people who are not happy about this result, even within the party. Juita, anything to read into the resignation of Alain I wasn't surprised either, but some commentators were quite taken aback. Uh, They uh, were pointing to the fact that on uh, Saturday, as part of his victory speech, Foliev really tried to strike a uh, magnanimous note and tried to bring everybody in. And... Uh, people have alluded to the fact that there might have been some kind of a personal disagreement that has prompted this because for the most part, as I said earlier, the caucus has gotten behind Poilievre. Uh, Alain uh, was, uh, was a very high-profile um, and is a very high-profile Quebec-based member of the party. Uh, after he quit, conservatives in his writing actually got a text message from the party saying that uh, here's someone who doesn't want to fight Trudeau anymore and you should call his office and tell him to quit as an MP. Of course, uh, the party has since recognized as uh, that this is bullying and has apologized for the text messages. But you can see that I think uh, it not only made Pierre Poliev look like a bully, but at least for people inside the Conservative Party, maybe they didn't see it coming, although I personally wasn't all that surprised. Uh, Pierre Poliev is far more to the right than uh, O'Toole and you know, even Stephen Harper, for that matter. And he's got some fairly controversial ideas that he's been promoting. Uh, he's been, prim- you know, appealing to the convoy people. I think we'll talk a bit more about that and the conspiracy theorists about uh, the COVID and the vaccines. And so some mainstream uh, conservative politicians might actually be alarmed by this. We may see other slightly more moderate conservative members either being pushed out or uh, end up leaving the party It'll probably be a very small number, though. So I think this might be symptomatic of, of some people exiting the party, saying that, the, this, this, as Michelle put it really well, the wind is at Poilievre's back. And for more moderate conservatives, they might really feel like they're not being heard in that uh, in that context. So I know that there had been some talk uh, about how if the race had been closer between Poliev and, and Jean Chalet, that there might have been some splitting off and splintering of the party, but I don't think that's going to happen now. Uh, so I do think that this is an interesting um, 
it's interesting to see what happened here with Alain Raye because it just goes to show you uh, that perhaps if you're a more moderate conservative, you're really questioning whether you still have a place in the party. That That's the push and pull that I think we've seen quite a bit ever since the Maxime Bernier splits with the party, and that certainly manifested in the last election, not with seats, but certainly with popular vote, that there's always going to be a push and pull inside that big tent as one person tries to drag the party a little bit closer to the center, there's going to be some splintering one way, and as the party gets taken a little bit closer to the more uh, traditional or new conservative values, there's going to be a little bit of the, the progressive conservatives that are going to splinter off in the middle. But I think that's just the reality of big tent politics, generally speaking. Let's talk about the following, because the one thing that I noted right from the start, even before Aaron O'Toole was ousted, Pierre Polyev is a star on social media. I don't know if it's the algorithms or the friends that I have or whatever it is. His social media presence is very, very visible on my Twitter, on my Facebook on my YouTube, it's just there. And he delivers a message, especially when he's talking about the economy, that I would argue is a little bit oversimplified, but it's one that definitely connects with people, Mm -hmm. especially when we're talking about fiscal responsibility and to maybe a lesser degree, uh, some of his feelings about cryptocurrency and central banks. But the fact (laughs) is the message is very digestible and it's one that I think a lot of people can understand in an era of government spending, big government spending. So I would say that that social media presence for maybe one of the first times since the early Trudeau days or the Barack Obama days, it actually manifested in votes. Jagmeet Singh has an awesome following on social media, but it hasn't necessarily translated into votes. In this case, the people who supported him mobilized behind mm-hmm. him. Michelle, why do you think that message or his message was able to get people to do more than just smash the share button? Timing being right for him because the the climate is perfect for the kind of messaging that he's that he touts these days. Um, so I think that definitely is a factor. You, you have the disenfranchisement of certain conservative voters that would have found an appealing voice in him. But I also think we can't discount the fact that he's had a lot of time to practice and get good at this. He's not a brand new fresh face that just burst onto the scene. He's been an MP for a long time. He's been the finance shadow critic for a long time. So this is a file he knows really, really well. He's got a great handle on the material. And he's also cut his teeth on being the attack bulldog. This is what his this is his thing. He's the guy who gets up in the House of Commons and gets in people's faces. Uh, he's been holding pretty combative press conferences for quite some time. Uh, this message that he's got is something that he has honed and and I would argue now perfected for quite some time. So I I do feel that he, he put the practice and the time in to, to craft uh, whatever message and persona he's got going right now. But I also feel like the, the timing just kind of worked out to make the, the, the voting base at large as receptive as they possibly could be to his brand of messaging, because it wasn't always like that. Pierre Poilievre was not necessarily, I, I argue, would not have been considered at all a viable candidate even a few years ago. Joita, how do you think he managed to make his message break through and have people actually take action, join the party, cast their votes? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dave. And you're you're right to point out that someone like Jagmeet Singh, who has an incredible social media following, isn't quite able to achieve the same result in terms of mobilizing the vote. I think for Pierre Polyev, he's really appealing to right-wing populism. And it's a bit like what we saw, actually it's quite similar to what we saw in the U.S. with uh, Donald Trump and, you know, his social media constantly jumping 
jumping on Twitter and being able to uh, harness that social media uh, following into a lot of support. There has, uh, I also think I want to pick up on Michelle's point about the timing. There has been a very loud and vocal minority that has been opposed to COVID. And those people who have opposed the restrictions have spawned a social movement. And I think Pierre Polyev has tapped into that on social media to an extent. And that social movement has definitely punched above its weight. And so I think that might have also contributed, the, just the, the stars aligned, if you will, with um, his social media savvy, but also just the moment that we're in right now with this very loud, very uh, vocal minority objecting to the COVID-19 and um, Pierre Polyev uh, sort of saying, you know, I am willing to uh, fight for you, uh, I, you know, against the elite. I am anti-establishment. I am opposed to the elite. And he's providing these really, uh, he's providing these really oversimplified messages which are resonating with people who are feeling increasingly hemmed in, you know, high inflation, the cost of gas is going up, the cost of food is going up. And here's Pierre Polyev saying he's going to take a swipe at the elite. So he's offering up on social media, very digestible hot button politics with very little public policy. And I would have to say that from this point on, I would be very curious to see if he can if you can take this any further. I know I said 670,000 is pretty impressive, and it is for a party following, but that's only 2% of the Canadian population. So I am intrigued to see if he's able to continue to mobilize in the way that he did for his leadership contest, whether this will actually be enough to, you know, to at some point render him the next prime minister of Canada, but perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself, you know. What you both answered there actually leads me into my last thought. Um, I even fell into the trap. I used the word oversimplified to talk about some of his uh, fiscal ideas, and maybe that's me flashing my bias a teensy tiny bit. Michelle, you used the word a combative relationship with the media. Michelle, what lessons do you think we can take as a media in covering Pierre Polyev? Because I think we've fallen, I say, I say we as sort of a collective mass media, sometimes fall into this trap of trying to battle into that combativeness or trying to kind of be dismissive of new ideas when perhaps we should maybe stick to fact checking in real time as opposed to trying to attribute things or attribute stories or stretch things to him. Just battle with his ideas at face value and try not to get too far into the weeds. I, I don't know if what I'm saying even necessarily makes sense there, but Michelle, what lessons do you think the media can take in trying to cover Pierre Polyev in like in a very, in, in, in a, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for, in an, in an objective manner? In a responsible way. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I do think you, you raise a good point about receptiveness to new ideas. I, I, I'm taken back to 2016 when Donald Trump's presidential run was initially covered in a lot of new sites' humor pages. It was not taken seriously at all to the point where it was literally presented as a humor piece. And then that changed over time as his, as his power base grew and his, you know, his inevitable <laughs> rise to the presidency uh, began to happen. But that needs to change, and I, I think has started to, in that there isn't necessarily that same degree of, of disdain for someone out of the box right out of the gate. But I do think you're right, Dave, in that the, the key going forward to cover Pierre Poilievre, and you're going to have to cover him. He is the leader of the official opposition and stands to be so for at least two more years with this confidence and supply agreement, not a coalition, like you said. But if that agreement does hold out, you're going to have to cover him, and the keys, I think, are facts and context. 
stick to the facts of what he's reporting, provide context for the statements he makes. If there's erroneous information in the statements he makes, point it out as such. Do that research. I think that kind of coverage and that fact-based approach is going to be absolutely critical in the next uh, couple of years in which a lot can happen. I'm kind of with Joita in being interested to see what will happen because in politics, that's a long, long time. And he's coming out really strong. And sometimes that can be a lot of pressure for a new leader to, to bear up under when they come out with such a strong mandate and such strong support. Uh, it be interesting to see if he can sustain that and, and broaden it, which he'll have to do. Joita, from a, me from a media and journalism perspective, what, what are some lessons that we might take away uh, as, as, as the coverage of Pierre Polyev really ramps up in earnest? Mm. Uh, I think we've established that he, Pierre Polyev, does well on social media. But if you'll pardon the understatement, we've, we can also say with some confidence that he does quite abysmally when it comes to the mainstream media. Uh, one of the things that is noticeable about Pierre Parliev is that when he's asked challenging questions, he completely falls apart. Uh, some uh, some weeks ago, there was uh, a questions about his wife, um, you know, speculating in property and how that was driving up housing prices. And what did he have to say about that? Uh, you know, and, and he did not have a good answer for that. I think that uh, this most recent incident involving David Aiken is very interesting and exceedingly illuminating at that press conference where Pierre Polyev said, I'm not going to take any questions. And David Aiken said, what do you mean I'm not going to take, you're not taking any questions. He got very upset about it. And I mean, it's kind of preposterous to think uh, that David Aiken, who has written for the Sun and he wrote for the Post, uh, is being called a liberal heckler. Uh, so, Pierre Polyevre is trying to do what he's always done, which is deliver, as I said, those hot buttons, sound bites, you know, digestible. He's trying to make the news the news. And as far as the media is concerned, there's a there's a couple of things that the media does, which is contextualize, fact check, but also, and this is crucial, hold leaders accountable. And how do you hold leaders accountable? You do so by asking challenging questions. And if you've got a party leader who's saying, I'm going to have a press conference, but I'm not going to let you ask questions, that is a red flag. I think yeah, lesson, we, also, we have a prime minister who does that too. Though. Yeah, but Dave, I mean, that's, the, that's a problem. Let's not normalize the situation where we take away the media's ability to ask questions and hold people accountable. There's a really important role for the media yeah, to play. I, in, I think in, it's unfair. I think it's unfair, though, that we've put that pin on Pierre Polyev this week when the prime minister has been doing it for years. You know, I was like, just going to say that, that what I wanted to point out was that Stephen Harper had a very, very hard limit on media questions. The, 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 the media landscape and the coverage plans did change when the administration changed. But this does come. It feels to me like a page out of a past conservative playbook. Yes. perhaps to a more extreme degree, but it is something that has been previously done. It has, and I think, if you don't mind me just closing out my thoughts on this, I think just because it's been done in the past doesn't mean we need to normalize it. It's very important for the media to continue to fill that very important accountability function, you know, to be that fourth estate, because Canadians should and need to be able to rely on the mainstream media to also ask tough questions and not let politicians dictate when and how that happens all the time. I, I agree with you 100%. I agree with you 100%, yeah, but I also think that it's important that as we start start pinning the tail on the donkey, that we put the context, just like Michelle said, that, that this is something that's been going on with the prime minister. And it's and this will only further if it only gets the lens only gets applied to Pierre Polyev mm. is going to fall into the trap of 
Look at you guys. You only point the dirty stick at me. You never point the dirty stick elsewhere. Yeah, no, it's a really fair point. I I totally can see that. The one other thing I'll say about how the media ought to handle Pierre Poiliev is, remember, he has this massive social media following. So they immediately turned on David Aiken. And so I think when the media is now tackling Pierre Poiliev, one of the things that's going to happen, which is specific to Pierre Poiliev, is the social media factor. If if you're a journalist and you're asking Pierre Poiliev tough questions, be prepared to be hounded on social media. Oh, yeah. You uh, you might... you might get owned. You might get owned on social media. Be prepared to be clipped. Uh, guys, we went way over on that. That's my fault. Apologies. But coming up next, we contemplate Ontario's new long-term care policy and their efforts to free up emergency room capacity. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joey DeGupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into our next topic. The Ontario government says hospital patients awaiting spots in long-term care may be moved to nursing homes up to 150 kilometres away while they wait for a spot in their preferred home. If they refuse, they can be charged $400 per day. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says this is part of a broader conversation about hospital capacity. Those conversations include, yes, we will need to charge if you refuse to take the, the long-term care bed that we have found for you. Long-term care minister Paul Calandra says people will not necessarily be moved the maximum distance away, but it gives hospital coordinators flexibility in placements. In many of the areas of the province, including, including of Toronto, there are Toronto and many of our largest cities, London, Windsor, Ottawa, there are many more homes available much closer than that. But as you can appreciate, you just started getting some of the rural parts of, of the province. Uh, uh, that distance between homes already is, is, is larger. The government says couples will not be separated and that religious, ethnic and language preferences will be respected. Michelle, because I so poorly mismanaged the clock, uh, do it talking about Pierre Poliev, I'm curious if you kind of have one crux of the crux of the issue question to sort of relay here to frame this conversation. Sure. Well, I feel like this issue might be a little bit more familiar to the AMI audience in general than it, maybe it is further afield, because we, as we do, looking at things through a disability lens a lot of the time, have had to talk about this a lot, about people who are being held either in hospitals or in long-term care facilities when it's not necessarily appropriate for them to be there, when they're not the facilities of choice for people to, that they would have opted to pick and, and be near, when they've been cut off and isolated from families. We're seeing a lot of those kinds of objections being raised now with this policy, which stands to be applied a lot more broadly in the service of trying to alleviate some really, really stretched emergency room capacity. So I felt it would be something that we really should sink our teeth into, uh, especially through the context of all the rhetoric that's come out through COVID about the importance of having access to family, about the importance of limiting your social isolation, specifically for seniors who do stand to be disproportionately impacted by this new policy. Joita, do you see that intersection between the experience of people with disabilities and the framing of this new policy? Uh, I do to an extent. Um, I think this policy, I was looking into this a bit more, will impact about 1,800 hospital patients. So these are patients who are in acute care beds in hospitals who uh, will be moved to a long-term care facilities um, far uh, as far as 70 kilometers away. And 
in the first... Or 150 in the north. Or 150 in the north, which is even worse. I mean, come on. Uh, but yeah. uh, in, um, in doing so, what the policy projects is that this will, in the first six months, free up about 250 emergency room beds, which at first blush seems like a lot, but it really isn't all that much. It's one of those poorly conceived policies where people with disabilities and chronic health conditions have become the casualties of uh, political decisions that have been uh, a long time coming, and we're paying the price for this now. One of the things we forget about the Ontario healthcare context is that in the 90s, under Mike Harris, Ontario deliberately closed hospitals and deliberately reduced capacity. God knows why. Sorry for editorializing. Uh, because That's here okay. We, That's because, what the because, for. Because, you know, here we are now reaping the, the consequences of that. But uh, according to uh, some findings by the Ontario Health Coalition, there are still hospital facilities uh, and acute care facilities that exist. That means the infrastructure is there, but they need to be adequately staffed. So this, there are other ways to increase the capacity of our emergency room and acute care and hospital facilities. Uh, I recognize that hospitals often become the places where and people end up staying because they don't have appropriate and adequate long-term care facilities, or, but, um, and that hospitals may not be the, the best place to go. But shunting people off to 70 kilometers away, 150 kilometers away, is not the answer. The answers are far more systemic. And I think we don't turn to look at those answers and we don't generate political will around those answers. What we tend to go to are these band-aid solutions, which deeply disadvantage vulnerable patients and their families. Now, with that said, I am curious to see if they'll actually go through with it because there will be, uh, I am sure, a lot of blowback. I can just see the the headlines now, you know, so-and-so is 77 years old. She is an elderly wife visiting her husband, seven, who, who is 90, you know, 90 kilometers away. There's going to be tremendous pushback. And I would be very curious to see if the government actually goes through with this. Uh, but yes, there are definitely resonances with the way in which people with disabilities have been institutionalized and removed from family contexts. But I would also hesitate to draw a line from, say, uh, the institutionalization of people with uh, cognitive disabilities uh, and, and, and uh, other intellectual disabilities, where instead of institutionalization, perhaps the solutions could have been with community housing or community living models. I was hesitate to go from there to, you know, we're talking about people with very severe health conditions, for example, someone dealing with addictions and withdrawals. That's a situation where I don't think you can do community care. I think that is a situation where that person probably needs a very high level of specialized care. And we do need to provide adequate long-term care facilities, but we just don't have the capacity right now. And as I said, that's because Ontario has the lowest per capita availability of hospital beds compared to any other province in the country. Michelle, you heard the word you heard the word band-aid in Joita's response there. Does it feel perhaps at all like we're just shifting resources around the Titanic right now as opposed to addressing some of the fundamental flaws and also really kind of cutting people out of choices about their own health care? I, I would definitely uh, say that it does have that kind of shifting vibe to it of, okay, well, you know, the, the healthcare capacity is overstrained. We'll shift it all to the long-term care sector. That'll be fine. 
uh, which itself raises questions that we've tried to bat around here a little bit about whether you can have discussions about the healthcare sector without involving the long-term care sector directly because they are so, so interlinked. Um, so the, the policy is, is baffling on, on, on a number of levels and has raised a lot of questions, but the main parallel I wanted to draw with the disability aspect, just to clarify matters, isn't so much between the actual circumstances and the community living piece. It's more the, the pattern that we've seen before is that a practice that has been in long use, specifically targeting the disabled population, is now coming under broader scrutiny and getting a lot more attention because it's being applied more broadly. That's something that I think we have seen before is that it doesn't, uh, something doesn't often register on the radar until it starts mm -hmm. to affect uh, a, a different segment of the population. Yeah, Michelle. That's the kind of... I remember, Sorry, go ahead, I, I remember during the pandemic, we talked about that with a lot of mask accommodation in the United States, people flashing the ADA around, the American with Disabilities Act, and then being horrified mm -hmm. to find out, oh, wait a minute, accommodation doesn't mean I get exactly what I want? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's there's several levels of reckoning that will have to take place if this policy goes ahead, I think. Uh, and even if it doesn't, there's a lot of questions and, and discussions that will need to happen. I, I actually suspect the government will go ahead with it. They, they have a majority mandate. They certainly don't need anyone else's help to enact this policy. I suspect it will go through. And uh, it's those subsequent conversations that I, that uh, feel a bit familiar to me, I think. Joita, because we're so pressed on the clock, I'm afraid we're going to have to skip your topic. So I'm actually going to come back to you to elaborate further on something you mentioned there that Michelle responded to, which is this government in Ontario does occasionally throw out policy as litmus tests and then will sometimes back off after public pressure. Do, do you feel with the, with the uh, context that Michelle put on there, with the resounding majority they hold in in the provincial parliament along with the fact that there's not going to be another election for three and a half years if not more that that they might mm -hmm. actually not back off on this policy at all oh it's hard to say dave you're asking me to predict what their government's going to do it's a fair it's a fair question um and i honestly don't know i think we shouldn't entirely discount um as the government sort of you know the, yes they've got three years left on the clock but this is the kind of policy that could generate a lot of blowback. So I wouldn't discount the possibility that the government moderates its approach a little bit. Uh, for example, they might, you know, continue with the policy, but uh, look at the penalty. Again, you know, $400 a day is prohibitive. It's, um, yeah. it's, it's over $2,000 a, a week. And so maybe if they get a lot of pushback from families and people, we might see some tweaking of this policy and some modifications of the policy. Maybe they'll reduce it to like $200 a day or something. Uh, but I think there are much bigger problems here that we don't have the time to delve into. And frankly, I'm not a health policy expert, so I'll just come right out and say I don't have the expertise to mm. delve into. Uh, but I think that the government is missing an opportunity here to uh, really look at our health system critically and try and address those gaps in a way that doesn't disadvantage patients in the way that it clearly is. Joita, what do you make of Michelle's question in regards to the possibility of, of dealing with long-term care and health care as separate portfolios or, or what the separation can be. I know you just mentioned I'm not a public health expert, mm. but do you think it's it's conceivable to keep those two files separated? I don't know if it is on a practical basis. Um, I think long-term care homes aren't retirement facilities. They often do work hand in glove with the healthcare system. So while we have to stop using, while there has to be some political will to stop using the long-term care sector as a warehousing facility for patients, um, I mean, there are political questions here, but I just don't know if you can 
practically separate out the two. I, I have a very hard time conceptualizing a situation where long-term care does not have a very deep and long-lasting relationship with our uh, hospital and healthcare sector. Michelle, you heard Joita mention that perhaps with the litmus test approach this government sometimes takes, that maybe we start nibbling at the margins here, saying, oh, it's $200 a day or it's $150 a day. Could you imagine some sort of uh, switch like that based on public pushback? <laughs> I, I can, yes. Um, or another potential option was that they would, that maybe they would reduce the uh, the distance parameters a little bit, make it you know 50 kilometers and 100 kilometers or something like that, rather than say 75 and 150. And if that happens, they would position it as a "we listen to the people" kind of win. That's that's how it would be presented, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, that kind of, of of smaller bit tweaking, I can certainly imagine that, but I don't. I, I'm going to go on record and say I can't. I would be very surprised, and I'll do something stupid on air like sing or something if it gets fully revealed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, guys, we have to get out of here. Michelle, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Have a great weekend, and everybody. Joita, I promise you we're going to get to your topic next week. I know we've been holding this one in our chamber for a couple of weeks now, so we're going to get to it too. next week. I promise it is a good one. Uh, Joita, thank you. Thank you very much. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, I'm going to give you the feedback lines, and then we're going to wrap up the hour. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, September the 16th, 2022. Typo in the script says September the 12th. That's $2 for Andrika going into the charity bucket that we're going to donate to at the end of the month. Everybody's accountable now. We're all accountable for this charity bucket as we're up to $16 total when we mess something up. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely shares his takeaways from the Real Abilities Professional Development Series for Filmmaking. We talked to the organizers about that earlier in the week, and Michael's got a little bit of a review from his experiences on the ground, or the virtual ground, as it were. And Greg David will be here. He gives you the lowdown on CBC's fall programming. Always fun catching up with Greg, including the return of Rick Mercer to CBC. People are pumped about that one. Let's begin the hour, though, with the regional news update. Statistics from British Columbia's coroner show the rate of drug deaths has doubled since the province declared a public health emergency in 2016, with 192 drug-related deaths recorded in July alone. Dr. Dr. Paxton Bach, co-director with the BC Centre for Substance Use, says BC needs a more coordinated and comprehensive response to the overdose crisis. We need to see a response from all sectors that is commensurate with the scale of the damage that's being wrought. That includes the federal government, the provincial government, municipal governments and society as a whole. Dr. Bach says the lack of coordination makes seeking help difficult for patients. We don't have enough people working and we don't have them working in a coordinated fashion to accomplish those goals. The result is that all of the effort of navigating that system is downloaded onto an individual patient and or their family members. The July overdose death toll represents a 31% month-over-month increase. 
Over to the prairies, where workers at a private laboratory responsible for most medical tests in Manitoba are poised to walk off the job. More than 300 employees at Dynacare Labs in Winnipeg and Brandon have voted 99% in favour of a strike mandate after being without a contract since September the 1st. The workers, who belong to the Manitoba Association of Healthcare Professionals, are required to give Dynacare 14 days' notice. Union President Bob Moros says they are still negotiating with the company. Over to Ontario. With a bit of COVID-19 vaccine news, the Ontario government says about 22,000 doses of the Omicron-targeted COVID-19 vaccine have been administered since becoming available on Monday. Dr. Kieran Moore says only 20,000 out of a potential 80,000 appointments have been booked for the next two weeks. Ontario's aged 70 and older, long-term care residents, healthcare workers, Indigenous people and their adult household members, immunocompromised people 12 and older, and pregnant people are eligible for the shot now. All people over 18 will be eligible to receive a shot after September 26th, but can begin booking their appointments now. And in the Atlantic, a similar story, a related story. Nova Scotia will begin offering Moderna's Moderna's bivalent COVID vaccine to its most vulnerable residents. People aged 65 or older can book their appointments starting on Monday. Residents who are 18 or older and living in long-term care facilities, shelters, or correctional facilities will also be offered a dose. That's your look at regional news. Let's lighten things up a little bit and talk to Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Oh boy, Brock, we talked about it yesterday. We were excited about a Thursday night football game and the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Los Angeles Chargers 27-24 in what was a very good football game. Yes, it was. Um, for one, I, 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 wrote, I wrote things down as I was watching and one of the first things I wrote down was it was kind of nice to see Patrick Mahomes face a little bit of adversity. And then... At times, he looked frustrated in the first half, and then literally the second half, everything flipped. I think that um, his his 41-plus-yard hookup between Justin Watson and himself oh. was kind of the, the turning point there, oh, yeah. one of them anyways. The other one was that punt that pinned uh, them uh, the L.A. team back into their around about the 10, 15-yard and then they got nothing out of it. And then Patrick Mahomes got the ball back and, uh, you know, put it in for a touchdown. But it's kind of nice. To, like I said, it's kind of nice to see that Patrick Mahomes is human a little bit because everyone thinks he's, you know, the the Iron Man. And the other thing I thought in the first half only was that I thought that they were feeling a little bit like maybe they were missing Tyreek Hill. But then the second half. Patrick Mahomes says, no, I got this and all is well. So, I mean, things change as as football games take place, of course. But it was a very good game. Very good. Football has to be the most preposterous sport where you do this thing for three hours and you scramble your bodies and you destroy yourself and everything comes down to just one or two breaks. You mentioned the way that Patrick Mahomes really excelled as the second half moved on. But early in the, even early in the second half, he threw two consecutive interceptions, one that was overturned by a penalty, another that was overturned by the replay booth. Brock, if either of those interceptions that were very, very close to being interceptions end up occurring, then we're talking about a totally different football game. And on the flip side, Justin Herbert in the fourth quarter is just 
casually driving the Chargers down the field. They're on the one-yard line. They're running a hurry-up play. He throws a teensy-tiny errant's pass that gets intercepted and returned for a touchdown by the Chiefs. And it's you just look at a couple of plays, a couple of bounces, and this whole game that is this ballet of catastrophe ends up getting decided by just a couple of bounces. Football is such a remarkable sport, and that's why, Brock, I just stick it to my veins. Yeah, it's 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 so great to watch. It's funny you should talk about the uh, turnovers that were both overturned. I had written down, oh, broadcaster's curse again. Uh, we talked about it yesterday <laughs> that he hasn't thrown an interception. And then what happens? He throws an interception, which both were uh, very quickly turned over. The other point that I want to make on this game last night is uh, Justin Herbert was clearly in some discomfort and he was able to get them back within striking distance. And I mean, he was taking some shots last night where you're just like, are you going to survive this game? But he did. And he's so resilient and to be able to say, Oh, it's okay. I got this. And as you say, casually driving it up the field and then bam, here's a touchdown. And we're back into this to the point where we had to have an onside kick to kind of decide this, which I always hate the look of an onside kick. (laughs) It always, it always looks like, Tim Horton's kids going after a football uh, soccer ball and whoever gets it first is what it looks like. But it just, it looks like utter chaos this is basically what an onside kick looks like to me. But, but it, anyway, they have to try it of course, because you, you just, at that point yeah, you can't need the ball you know, back kick the ball off, yeah. but it's it, it just so good. Such a good uh, Thursday nighter. And uh, yeah, I, I just think the NFL needs to kind of pick and choose the games that they put on these one, uh, you know, one game where every eyeball is on it, and uh, that's where we roll to. Brock, have I have I told you my Thursday night theory? Because I typically find it's it's terrible that we have these guys playing on three days rest, especially when it's a marquee game that could decide the division. Have I ever told you my theory on this? I don't think so. So my theory is start utilizing more bye weeks. Add an add another week to the season, not add another game. Add another week to the season. Give teams two bye weeks and make sure every Thursday game is teams coming off a bye week. So the bodies are rested. The quality of the game is going to be better. And I think that's a way that you can put more marquee matchups on Thursday and still maintain the quality of the product. I like it. I really do. And I think the CFL now has, you know, three, three off weeks. Um, yeah. It built yeah. into their season. And I think that's important. When you look at the NFL and I think now they might have two off weeks, but I don't know just this one. for sure. No, just one. Only, they, just, they, they added the extra game and they added the extra week to the season, but they did not add, ex- add an extra bye week. Okay, that's right. I, I knew they added an extra week, but I, I wasn't sure if it – yeah. So I think the CFL does this right where they add the, the extra – the extra couple of games off and you do see guys that are fresher. And as, as we've talked about a few times, when your body has to go through the grind that it does, it's like, give it a rest. Like I've said, it's, it's like going through 40 car accidents in the same game, you know? And so for the consumer of the game, I think you owe it to the players and the bodies to, to give them a bit of a rest. So I personally like it. And I think that the NFL should adopt the, uh, CFL's three bye weeks. Yeah. Um, 
in the game. I like that. See, it also extends football season, which makes me happy. Uh, 100%. Brock, we, uh, I, I don't want to dwell too, too, too much on this, but it relates a little bit for Blue Jays fans because the Blue Jays game uh, for the, against the Orioles tonight is going to be broadcast on Apple TV+. Plus. It's one of the Friday night Apple TV Plus baseball games. Last night represented the first ever Thursday night game broadcast strictly on Amazon Prime. In the U.S. and Canada, it was still on CTV2 and TSN. But I'm curious, what did you think of the actual broadcast last night? A little bit of a Frankenstein booth with Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet, a different kind of halftime show, some x-ray stats popping up on screen. What did you think of the Amazon presentation? I like when they do these types of games. I think it kind of shows the, the different sides of the game. I like when they do this. Um, I, th- I think it was very well done. I th- for some reason, I thought the picture was clear, and maybe this is just me, you know, nitpicking it. I don't know why. I just thought that the picture and the sound quality was a little bit better than than what it is. I also like when the NFL does those Nickelodeon uh, games yeah, with yeah. the slime on the screen. Love that. So when they do these these um, specific in- initiatives, I think it's a really good thing. I'm glad you mentioned the sound. Could be something they did really well was you heard the quarterbacks very clearly at the line, audibling, doing snap counts, doing fake snaps. I thought that was really good. I thought I really liked that. The one thing I thought they really struggled with in the first half is the ambient crowd sound wasn't as high as I would have liked it to have been, especially in a stadium like Arrowhead, which is renowned for being either the second or third loudest stadium in the NFL. I thought they could have used a little work on that sound mix, but even that got self-corrected by the end of the game. So I was very impressed with the Amazon yeah. broadcast. Brock, let's. Uh, I mentioned you know the Blue Jays are playing the Orioles this weekend in Toronto. It's overall a busy weekend in sports. There's a great boxing pay-per-view tomorrow night between Canelo Alvarez and Ganelli Golovkin, the third fight in their trilogy. Pumped for that one. Am I going to buy it on pay-per-view? Undecided. But Brock, what are you most looking forward to this weekend on the sports calendar? So I think this is a big, big, as you mentioned, this is a big series uh, for the Toronto Blue Jays. And I think we're going to be saying this over the next uh, few weeks as we wind down the season. I I cemented that, you know, what I don't want to see this year is is the Blue Jays have to come down to winning the last game of the year. It's starting to look like that may not happen. Um, they need to take at least two out of three against the Orioles if they want to, you know, put some space uh, from them and everybody else. The White Sox are really no no match, so it's going to come down to the Orioles and everybody else fighting it out. Uh, the other thing I'm looking forward to this weekend is some of the uh, football games. I think uh, looking forward to Tampa Bay, um, versus new orleans i was pretty high on new orleans last week i think that um james winston can be good if everybody stays healthy there and i think this is going to be a real test where do you put yourself against tom brady we'll find out sort of deal and we'll go from there but i think this is a really good marquee matchup to look forward to and just kind of see where the new orleans saints can be and should be against a team that you know is going to be good. I'm actually kind of stunned that game is a 1 o'clock game on Sunday, a 1 o'clock Eastern game on Sunday. I thought for sure Fox would have wanted to put that in their 425 slot as their marquee game. Brock, I'm a, I'm a homer. I'm a ridiculous homer. So 1 o'clock on Sunday, I'll be watching the Dolphins at the, uh, at the Ravens. I want to still figure out if two is for real. That's going to be an ongoing challenge for me. Brock, I how, pro- long does it, how long does it take for you to, to 
realize whether two is real or not because I'm, I'm struggling with this. <laughs> it's going to take uh, six years, but at the same time it took to figure out on Ryan Tannehill and it turns out the Dolphins got that wrong. Um, <laughs> Brock, uh, earlier in the week I, uh, I teased, I teased a little bit about the way in which Canadian media covers American college football and I expressed a little bit of disappointment in the, uh, in the slate of games that TSN featured. I, uh, they also kind of messed up this weekend, too. The absolute best game of the weekend will be at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday when Miami of Florida, the Hurricanes, visit the Texas A&M Aggies in College Station in East Texas. That game is not going to be available anywhere on Canadian cable, which is a real disappointment. I suppose there's some way you could... <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened there as I was expressing where you could watch it. Uh, but I do want to give you at least one game you can find on Canadian cable at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday when the BYU... Cougars visit the University of Oregon in Eugene for a matchup of two ranked teams with Oregon being a slight favorite in that one. This is a really important game for the BYU Cougars who are a non-aligned team. They're not part of any particular conference and have put together just an amazing schedule for themselves this year as an independent team going on the road, playing tough teams or playing neutral site games against quality opponents. This is one of the first ones. Going into Eugene is a difficult one. Oregon probably has the better quarterback in terms of Bo Nix, who's a very, very experienced player who used to play for the University of Auburn before transferring this year. So this is a big prove-it game for BYU. If they win this game this week, they can start looking ahead to games later on against Arkansas and Notre Dame that could actually put them in the national championship picture. And for Oregon, after getting their brakes beaten off by the Georgia Bulldogs in the first week of the season, this is their chance to say, are we still hanging around this year? Are we still a legitimate competitor in the Pac-12? This is a game with a lot of stakes early in the season, 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on Fox. So that's the one that I would highlight tomorrow in terms of the, the games that you can find uh, completely, totally legally on Canadian cable TV, unlike Miami and Texas, which you can find. A <laughs> I, I don't know where you can find that game. I have no idea at all. <laughs> No, no, we, we, no one, no one would ever do any illegal no, no sport, no course. sports fan no. would ever go to the <laughs> uh, Brock. No. Have a great weekend. You too. I hope your cough gets better. <laughs> yeah, I hope the cough gets better too. You know, sometimes it just comes at you like that. That's Brock Richardson. He's our sports reporter. He's also the host of the Neutral Zone on AMI Audio. Alex Smythe is here with the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. And starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, there's showers with up to four millimeters expected and 15 is the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly cloudy with wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and they also have a high of 14. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly sunny and a high of 17. In Quebec City, Quebec, same thing, it's mainly sunny and a high of 17. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a high of 24. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, the showers and thunderstorms with up to 5 millimeters expected and a high of 21. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 14. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy and 19 is the high. In Lethbridge, Alberta, Cloudy with possible rains this morning and then becoming a mix of sunny clouds in the afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. And the high is 24. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 19. In Whitehorse, Yukon, 
It's sunny and a high of 14. Kelowna, BC. Showers are starting this morning with thunderstorms expected to begin later in the morning. Up to 10 millimeters is expected. Smoke is also in the area this morning, so be sure to watch out for that. And there's a high of 17. And finally in Vancouver, BC. It's mainly cloudy and hazy with scattered showers ending in the afternoon. And the high is 17. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Alex, you feel like perhaps I've neglected an important football game to preview ahead of this weekend. Absolutely, Dave. I mean, how can you not talk about the 1-0 Chicago Bears <laughs> going into Lambeau Field with the vulnerable 0-1 Green Bay Packers? The tide is turning in the NFC North, Dave. Come on now. If there's a monsoon, I give the Bears a chance to win. If there's enough, <laughs> if there's fair. enough rain to wash away the paint on the field, I give the Bears a chance. Alex, thanks for this. Bears up. Yeah, take care. Hashtag claws up. Coming up next, Michael McNeely will share his takeaway from the Real Abilities Professional Development Series for filmmaking. But first, the new iPhones are on sale today. But if you want one, you'll need big pockets or a big purse. And no, I'm not talking about money. Derek Dennis discusses screen size in Tech Trends. Gizmodo's Michelle Earhart says the demise of the 5.4-inch mini iPhone shouldn't come as a surprise. I do miss the mini, though. You know, I'm a woman. I have smaller pockets. Uh, I really wish that they kept that around. But she says smaller devices may have a future in the growing foldable market. Samsung just released its foldable lineup, the Galaxy Z Fold and Z Flip. It just released the newest iterations in those, and those allow you to get larger real estate while having smaller-ish devices. But so far, foldables are exclusively for Android users. I think that's probably the next thing that people are really looking for from Apple is when are they going to get into the foldable uh, market. With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Earlier this week, we spoke with organizers behind the Real Abilities Film Festival to learn about their new series on professional development. If you do want to hear that interview, feel free to download our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Now with Dave Brown. Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, had a chance to attend some of the seminars and joins us to share some of his takeaways and observations. Hey, good morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. I'm practicing smiling for the camera today. <laughs> yeah, we're all practicing smiling. That's always a good policy. Michael, why do you think professional development events like this are so important for filmmakers with disabilities? I think when you look at the education experiences of people with disabilities in general, we find that they are often not very accessible or inclusive for many of us. I think we've had negative experiences in some part going through the school system and maybe we may be fearful of pursuing further education in light of those negative experiences. So I do think that there is an education gap which with abilities has sought to fill by providing these professional development sessions. In these particular sessions, what were some of the accessibility features of the panels that you attended? 
And these these accessibility features are also for the future panels that we'll talk about later in the segment. But they're all on Zoom and they have closed captioning as well as ASL interpretation. So that means that everyone can attend as long as they have a way to access Zoom and they can use either the closed captioning or ASL or both. Was there a lot of engagement from people who were involved in the sessions? I could not tell the um, total list of participants, but I noticed that there was lively discussion in the chat, which is always very pleasing to see. Um, I found that in both of my sessions that I attended, everyone was talking about getting together on social so on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram, and people were following each other and starting to build a community from those people that attended. And what were some of the things that you took away, that you learned from this experience? So I learned a lot. Um, the first panel I attended was on Wednesday at 3 p.m. It was um, how to make films for low cost or for free and there were a lot of resources shared by the presenters. Um, two of the presenters are filmmakers with disabilities. Their names are Spencer McKay and Emily Schooley. They provided a very, very uh, powerful presentation that discussed resources for um, pre-production, production, post-production, post and distribution. I was able to take away one or two salient points from each of those sessions. And one that I would like to share with everybody is that making a film does not need to be overwhelming. It does not need to be scary. Most, of, most people start with a short film, which is probably going to be five to 10 minutes long. My first short film was about 13 minutes long. And essentially, what, what happens is that you have an idea and you want to follow the idea to the conclusion. So keep it simple, keep it authentic. We, we talked about indie panel, we talked about that. Um, there are not many stories about people with disabilities. So there's always much to learn when it comes to your experience as somebody with a disability. I think I'll share one more idea. Um, in the production stage, when you're actually doing the filming, it's important that you treat your team well, because those are the people that are working with you for the long term. You want to make sure that you find good people, and you want to make sure that you incentivize those people to keep working with you. So if you don't have enough money to pay for those people, that may be fine. Perhaps you can show your gratitude in other ways, like feeding them because everybody needs to eat sometime. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely the truth. Michael, generally speaking, how have you learned about the filmmaking industry? Well, I've mostly been self-taught. As I've shared on this podcast many times, I wanted to major in film studies, but I never got the opportunity to because the film studies department was not providing closed captioning for me at the time. So I essentially rented or bought all those films in the first year of course, and I watched them all. 
that's why I have some posters in my room now. Um, one of them is Charles, right behind me. Um, this is the best summertime film. I still haven't seen it, but we'll talk about that sometime. That was one of the films in the in the um, first film quest that I wasn't able to take. So I think, you know, sometimes when you're self-taught, it's easy to feel insecure. But um, I think it's important to realize that teaching yourself and maybe taking one or two of these courses that with abilities is providing, um, that's probably the best way to go. And that's probably, you know, it's, it's no less than any other method. When we're talking about professional development, what are some specific lessons that you'd like to see more of? So I think I would just love to keep going with these um, with these sessions that my abilities is providing, just to keep discovering more and more topics. So maybe maybe it would be how to make an action film with somebody with a disability, or how to make an inclusive um, horror film, or more about script writing, because um, the second panel that I attended was supposed to be about script writing, but instead it turned out to be about people's internal processes for finding creativity and producing work, which is still not a bad topic, but it just wasn't the topic I was expecting. Let's come back to the accessibility side of this. What are essentials that people need to keep in mind if they're going to be making an event like this accessible and inclusive? I think the first thing you need to do is you need to advertise the accessibility features that you're going to be providing. And not providing accessible features is not an answer. That is not appropriate at this time. So one must always be upfront with these accessible features. Um, I think another thing is to maybe share notes or highlights ahead of time to allow people to follow along. I that that was mostly done in our presentations, but I always would appreciate an outline just before we get started, just so that I can keep track of what's happening or what people are addressing or what I can take home at the end of the day. I think um, also stopping and asking how people are doing, if people are keeping up or making sure that people have an outlet so that they can express any challenges that they're having is always a great idea. So with abilities did a good job of this because they they provided instructions in the chat for how we could ask for hope if we needed help. And I think everything went really well. I think um I just I just need more of these kinds of events because I saw the level of engagement, the interest is there, the passion is there, the the speakers and the panelists are extremely talented and knowledgeable about their subject matter. So I just want more and more and more. Mm. Well, speaking of more, 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 the development series is not over just yet. There's a little bit more coming down the pipeline. So what are some of the focuses that they're going to lay out today before it ends? Well, you don't have much time, but at 3 p.m., there's going to be a panel about actors with disabilities breaking out of the mode, breaking out of typecasting. There's some very, very, very uh, powerful talent on that panel. And then at 6 p.m., 
there's a matchmaking for creatives, so it's not dating. It's just matchmaking for if you have a team that you're trying to get together for a project, or maybe you just want to make a new friend that may help you watch your screenplay or help you with your camera, I think that's where you will find the people that you may want to work with. So what I would suggest for you right now is not to waste any time, but to register for the panels um, at 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. by going to the website. Um, you can also Google uh, Willabilities, R-E-E-L-A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E-S Toronto, and you will find the website where you can register. Registration is free, so that's another aspect that I didn't talk about with accessibility in the events. Often the economic cost is, is a barrier. So these, these sessions are completely free. Michael, thank you for letting us know about how, how your experience was so far and enjoy the rest of the, uh, the development series. Yes, and I would also just recommend to everyone, you know, keep pursuing courses and a new chance that you can get, even if they're not from a university or from a college, it doesn't mean they're any less valid. And don't be afraid to learn new things. That's great advice, Michael. Thank you. That's Michael McNeely. If you want to learn more about the Real Abilities Film Festival's professional development series that's free and virtual and still a few more sessions to go, visit their website, rafto.ca. That's rafto.ca. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in Ramya Emuthan, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, and Alex Smythe to have a little chat about what's going on in the world. I've mentioned a couple times on the show today, the new iPhone is out, the iPhone 14 released in stores, people lining up around retailers and Apple stores and all this jazz. So it's got me thinking, how trendy are we as a crew around now with Dave Brown? So good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. I feel like this uh, wouldn't warrant one-word answers, but I already got some. <laughs> and good morning, Nazreen. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. So, Ramya, tell me, are you someone who will wait in line and get something on the very first day? Not even. No, I've never done that, never will. In fact, usually I wait till, even with the iPhone or anything else, I'm like, I'll wait until the next upgrade so that I can get the <laughs> the earlier version. Yeah. Avoid everything. Yeah, I'm in a similar deal. I tend to lag. I'm a lagger. I'm not I'm not trendy. I can't even think about the last time I bought something on the first possible day. But here's where I come to Nizreen. Because Nizreen, you're trendy, you're hip, you're with it, you're a shoe head, if you hope I'm not revealing too much there. And of course, people will line up for a sweet pair of shoes. Our old friend Roy Zwiffel used to line up as a sneakerhead on sneaker release day. What about, you, what about you, Nazreen? Have you ever lined up and gotten something on the very first day? I don't remember ever lining up for something on the very first day. Never. I always try to avoid these long lines. And even my iPhone, I only buy a new iPhone when it breaks. And to be honest, that does happen a lot because I do drop it a lot too many times, in fact. So... 
as much as you think I'm trendy, I'm really not. It's just for <laughs> show where I buy all the the sale items in the world, but you know, just to you know, that's that's just how it is. It's it's all uh, it's all just for show, I guess. And of course, this all somewhat relates to our daily poll, which folks can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Twitter on uh, so on Facebook, where we're asking how often do you end up upgrading or replacing your technology? Do you do it regularly, rarely, or only when it breaks? So I think we can put Nizreen in the only when it breaks category on that yeah. one. Yeah, uh, Alex Smythe, I'm curious from your perspective, can you remember a time where you lined up to be a part of something on the very first day? Uh, now, I can't remember ever lining up specifically for something, but I have done a couple like pre-order things. So uh, most recently would have been um, the uh, next generation Xbox. Like I, I pre-ordered that as soon as I could, as soon as I could find it, because I knew it was going to be because of, you know, the, the when it released, it was right towards the uh, first uh, part of, uh, COVID, you know, there was supply chain issues. It was going to be all sorts of uh, problems about getting one for over a year. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make the commitment. It was one of the few times I was like, I'm going to pre-order this and I'm going to hope for the best and, and see when it arrives. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to get it on, on like the first day it was released. But I haven't been the type to go and physically line up to, to get something, you know what I mean? But um yeah, that would be for technology anyways. That would be the one I can point to. It's like, oh, I got that right away because I really wanted it and I knew it was going to be an issue trying to get it any other time. Mm-hmm. Rami, Rami, you run in cool circles. What about like a <laughs> nightclub or a restaurant on opening night? No, not even. Come on, Dave. I, I don't know what reputation I've been building up on here at AMI. Um, but anyways, what I was going to say, I think, though, I think is... Cool is <laughs> a matter of relativity. You're cooler than me. Yeah. So therefore, okay. you're the cool one in the group. Sure. Okay, so here's the thing, though. I do know people who have been pretty reactive to these kind of things, like sneakerheads. Nisreen, when you were talking, I thought of my friend who wanted these pair of sneakers so bad, but he'd never done anything to kind of, like, prep for this situation or keep tabs on how many are left and all this stuff. And they were a pair of um, Jordan True Blues, I think. And he went all over the GTA trying to find the absolute last pair, you know, the the final couple that are left over that nobody's taken, the, the that could fit him, hopefully, fingers crossed. And it was the funniest thing to see. And I'm like, this is why I'm not a sneakerhead. <laughs> Nizreen, where do you think it comes from? Where do you think the desire is for people to be first on these things? Is it just for the gram? Is it just for the gram? Is it for the TikTok? I think it's just for the trend. Yeah, I think it's just for Instagram and and just to show that, you know, I got it first. Um, I I know some people in my family do feel the same way, though, where they have to have the newest iPhone, the newest, you know, device, the newest Xbox, even though they do have these devices, like it's perfectly fine. But they just want to keep up. Just, I feel like it's just to prove to themselves that they are trendy. <laughs> Is that possible, Dave? It's to keep. Do it's you the, think I'm right? No, it's to keep up. It's to keep up. It's to be like, hey, if I've got the new thing and I go to the dinner party this weekend, I can show everyone at the table my new thing. Yeah. I, there's like there's something there's something to that, right? Although I, I don't I don't go to dinner with people, so I don't need to brag. I just I just sit by <laughs> myself eating pizza. That way, there's no bragging necessary at all. Uh, Nazreen, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. You too, Alex. You have a great weekend as well. Yep. Thank you, Ramya. You're not done quite yet because you're hosting Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Give me a taste of what's coming up this afternoon.
I am not allowed to have a good weekend yet. In no. Other words. I'll, well, eventually I'll let you have a good weekend. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So there's some new accessibility and sharing features coming to Android devices, Dave. John Beeler is going to give us the uh, details on our app update. Plus the Indigenous Disability and Wellness Gathering hosted by the BC Aboriginal Network on Disability Society takes place in November. That was a mouthful. But Sylvie Fiquette has the details on exactly what's going on and who's hosting it and why it's important. And then on the Chatty Bookshelf where we talk audiobooks before the weekend hits. Ryan Huey's telling us about Audrey, and this is a new audiobook player. It's available on Google Play Store, Apple App Store, and um, it's got a bit of a twist to it, so I'm interested to know how he's reacting. Uh, Ryan's always got the yeah. inside scoop on the shelf. He knows how to do his thing. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this, and now you can have a great weekend. Of course, after thank you do a great you. job on Kelly oh. and Company. Thank you so much. <laughs> you too. That's Ramya. I'm within the co-host of Kelly and Company. That comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming your way next is Craig David, our friend from the communications department of AMI. He's going to tell you all about CBC's fall programming lineup. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Found another typo in the script. This one's on Paul Daniel. Calling the segment The Scoop. We don't do that anymore. It's going in the fine charity bucket. $2 per mistake. We're up to $18 since new fiscal year. At the end of the month, that's going to get donated to a charity. I don't mean to wander off the path because we are delighted nonetheless to bring in AMI communication specialist Greg David from Chelsea, Quebec to find out what's going on around the network and TV more broadly. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. How much of that $18 is just Paul? Uh, that's Paul's. That's only Paul's first fine. That's only Paul's <laughs> okay. first fine. The majority is me. The vast okay. majority is me, Greg. Okay, great. Uh, for one of the things that we're going to talk about right now, because we're always talking about AMI's presence on social media and yeah. out of muscle memory in my lips, when I'm talking about our daily polls, sometimes at AMI audio just slips out. Of course, now the daily poll is found at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. So every time I make that mistake, that's $2 on me. And let's just say that one is slipping out pretty regularly. But Greg, you want to go beyond the polls. If folks go past by those social media channels, what are they finding? What's the value added if they stick around on Twitter or Facebook? Yeah. So aside from the daily poll that's so great and and gets the conversation going with our audience on on Twitter and Facebook, um, you're going to find links to now with Dave Brown highlights. So you know curated segments that can be featured on social media and will drive people to the website, of course, and also engage in conversations. Uh, those are like I said, segments that we've chosen to highlight and engage with our followers. Uh, we also provide links to full episodes of our programs that you can then find on YouTube. Uh, over on Facebook, we post full episodes of our shows for streaming right there. So you can go to Facebook and just stay there all day answering poll questions and streaming episodes. We also post links to events held by our community partners, which is really important. And we just like to update our friends on what's going on at AMI, just kind of in general. And that that's the place for Facebook is kind of a really good base. So you can uh, connect with us on Twitter. 
at Accessible Media or on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Don't forget the ink at the end when you're on Facebook. Yeah, ink with a C, as in incorporated, with a C. not with a K. Not we're not a newspaper company. We're a we're a we're a multimedia company. Uh, speaking of multimedia, Greg, the one place that I don't plug a ton on the air because I don't want to get the branding wrong and get fined another two dollars. What's <laughs> happening with the Instagram page? Yeah, so if you head over to Accessible Media Inc., again with a C like Dave just said on Instagram, you're going to find a lot of teasers of upcoming AMI-TV programs and AMI-audio podcasts. We also feature clips from our programs there and podcasts, from the programs and podcasts. And again, it's all about engaging with our audience. Uh, you know, people go to social media to have conversations. And so that's what we do on Instagram. We found that Instagram is a great place to just kind of offer bite-sized content that then teases people and drives people to the website so they can learn more about us. And while we're talking about some more bite-sized content... We're now on the TikTok bandwagon as well. I know this is a kind of fresh development since launching the channel and trying to figure out our exact strategy, but what are we doing with the TikTok and where can people find us on TikTok? Yeah, TikTok is really interesting, you know, as kind of a visual medium, we were thinking that maybe there, you know, there wasn't much use for us being on there. But contrary to that, the, uh, the, it's, there's a voracious appetite for learning more about AMI on TikTok. We started it just over a month ago, and we've been quickly learning what, what type of content attracts attention there. And so like Instagram, we offer shorter clips from AMI content designed to get the conversation going. But clips from a show that you and I have spoken about before is called you can't ask that. Mm -hmm. And the clips that we put on there, Dave, have exploded. Uh, the most recent one that we posted got over 300,000 views and really got the conversation going about visible disabilities and facial differences. Just a fascinating conversation. So we're learning a lot about TikTok. But if you want to follow us over there and check out some of the clips and, again, engage with us, it's at Accessible Media on TikTok. One of the things that I've started to dabble with on TikTok, I'm a late bloomer. I'm a Luddite, everyone knows that. I'm always lagging yeah. behind. One of the things that I've noted is oftentimes when there's text on screen, there's narration that tells you about the text on screen. Not always, not always, yeah. but it seems like when we're talking about transcription and, and reading of text on screen, it seems like a lot of the big creators on TikTok have absolutely put that together. Yeah, and we've been doing that. You're absolutely right. It's all about making all of our posts accessible, especially for the you know the disability community, but also including the deaf and hard of hearing community. And what TikTok's just done in the last week or so is that they've included automatic um, closed captioning, which is fantastic. We'll always continue to add it to our posts anyway, but it's nice to know that the TikTok plat tip. TikTok platform has added captioning to make it, make it accessible to as many people as possible. So, Greg, I know we threw a lot of handles at people there. Why don't we do a little recap together here? I'll do the two that I know, and then you do the two that you know. So, okay. at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Got it. And over on Instagram, it's at Accessible Media Inc. And on TikTok, at Accessible Media. That was good teamwork, Greg. Teamwork makes the dream work. It sure does. Let's uh, jump over to some fall programming at CBC. We always enjoy when you give us a roundup of what's coming down the pipeline. So there's a lot in store when it comes to uh, the national broadcaster. We've got the long-running Canadian whodunit Murdoch Mysteries coming back for season 16. So what are the airtimes and what do you think the secret is for Murdoch's success? 
Uh, so Monday nights at 8 p.m. on CBC. You can always stream their content on CBC Gem, which is a great is CBC's great streaming service where you'll find closed captioning as well. As, um, but you know the secret to the success is it's it's very Canadian. If you're histor if you're a fan of historical uh, Canada, uh, you know they they do tweak the story some sometimes. But I always like it. Always sends me to Google to look up the latest you know Toronto landmark or that person in Canadian history. So I think that that's one thing. Uh, it, um, but I also think that it's just it's kind of family friendly. Yes, it is a murder mystery, and there are at least one you know there's at least one murder per episode. But it's also a little bit lighthearted. Um, um, it's 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 very family friendly. You can sit down with your kids, and and uh, there are generations of fans that watch Murdoch Mysteries, you know, every uh, you know every year, and it also has this huge international appeal. So I think that those are those are the big things. If you're a historical fan and you like family friendly drama, that's the reason why to, uh, to watch Murdoch Mysteries. A very beloved character from CBC is coming back, and when I say character, I mean he's an actual human. But Rick yeah. Mercer is making his return with the Comedy Nights. What what do we know about what they're going to attempt with this show. This is really interesting. It airs Wednesdays on CBC, and I didn't know until CBC sent me a screener what this is going to be about. So essentially, for the last couple of years, um, Rick Mercer has gone across the country playing theater houses, and he is kind of the MC, telling stand-up jokes, and then welcoming stand-up comedians out to do a five, six, seven-minute, eight-minute uh, eight set, uh, and then he sits down with them. Well, what they did was, just for laughs, said, hey, let's let's put, turn this into a TV show. So they're pointing cameras at the stage. So it's really a welcome return to having Rick Mercer back on CBC where he hosted um, the Mercer Report for so long and it was a ratings winner like Murdoch Mysteries. And so now he's kind of back in his element. It's part stand-up uh, comedy. It's part one-on-one. -on -one, and it's it's really, really enjoyable. I think people are really going to like it. And stand-up is such a huge genre right now, Dave. And to get access to Canadian uh, comics in particular, you're only going to find it on a show like this. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there is we're giving people platform to do their work, right? So many times these interview shows are like, let's talk to the person about their work. No, man, show the work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Greg, yeah. Uh, fans of Kim's Convenience may be delighted to hear about a show called Strays. Yeah, so this is a spinoff. It airs Wednesday nights as well on CBC. And this this show took a lot of heat when it debuted last year because it was a spinoff from, from Kim's Convenience and Kim's Convenience had just been canceled. So there were a lot of ill, you know, hard feelings amongst that. But really in this second season of Strays, I really think that the sitcom is kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, distinguished itself as its own show. So it follows Shannon Ross, who was on Kim's, the character was on Kim's Convenience. She was the manager at the car rental agency and she's left Toronto for Hamilton, where she has become a manager at a pet shelter in Hamilton East. And it's all about not only the pets that she interacts with, but the humans as well, because that's always important. And it's, you know, it's full of quirky characters. Um, it's quite, it's it, it's a really good show. Uh, the writers and executive producers behind Kim's Convenience are also associated with Strays. So I would encourage people to, if you're a fan of Kim's Convenience, check out Strays, CBC, Wednesday nights. Yeah, sometimes a spinoff is just by its nature going to get a bit of blowback, even if the yeah. quality of the programming is really good. I think about the first season of Better Call Saul, which was a bit of a rough slog, but it was made so worth it by the time you worked your way through the series. Even a show like Frasier that spun off from Cheers. Yeah. It was an excellent show right from the start, but people were like, where's my Cheers? I need my Cheers. Yeah, you got to be patient, folks, especially these days.
Earlier in the week, we had Liam McGuire join us. He's a hockey historian mm-hmm. to talk about the significance of the 1972 summit series between Canada and Russia. Well, CBC is working on something of their own on this front. I mean, unsurprisingly. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, uh, you know, Liam spoke about this earlier uh, earlier in the week, and uh, it's it's a four-part documentary on CBC called Summit 72. Uh, I grew up in 1971, or I was, excuse me, I was born in 1971, so I've only heard about this, you know, and, and what an impact that it had kind of on Canadian culture at that time. I've seen the first episode, and if you missed it, you can go back and watch it on CBC Gem, uh, but it's it's on, uh, on CBC on Wednesday nights as well. Uh, it really explores the cold war canada's relationship between the soviet union which there wasn't one at the time and the fact that you know let's put the best nhl players on the ice at that time up against the the soviet national team who were amateurs quote unquote uh but had been winning uh, championships or, or winning tournaments and were deemed the best in the world and it it's a real microcosm on Canada, the Soviet Union, and ice hockey. And they also intersperse ads in. So, you know, fans of the stubby bottles of 50 oh. are going to be thrilled <laughs> because there's an ad for that in there. But it really talks about the culture and then talks to the players. This is all new footage. It's it's There were over 80 hours of, uh, of footage that has been grabbed and has turned into um, 4K and 5K in some in some spots uh, and, t- and speaks to not only the, the players that are still alive today, but also some archival footage of them uh, uh, you know the players that have that we've lost over the years, but it really, really is cool. And the night that the first episode debuted, there were so many people on Twitter commenting about how they were transported back to their childhood, mm. listening to Foster Hewitt, and just seeing these players on the ice again. Greg, next time we talk in a couple of weeks, I would love to talk about the Canadian TV and film industry a little bit more because I just spent the weekend with a bunch of my Hallmark movie actor friends and Lifetime <laughs> actor friends, yeah. and a few of them are off shooting in Newfoundland this week on Hudson and Rex. I would love yeah. to talk about the significance of having so many great shooting opportunities around Canada, but we don't have time for that today. So let's put a pin on that one and make sure we get to that in a few weeks when we hang out. Sounds good, Dave. Thanks a lot. That's Greg David. He's a communications specialist for AMI. That's all the time we have for the show this week. But we need to give huge thank yous to the people who put this show together. Of course, on air, you hear from people like Brock Richardson and Alex Smythe, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Romya Amuthin. There's also our senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol, who does so much behind the scenes. You guys have no clue. We cannot say goodbye without thanking our technical staff either, though. Bruce McLarian, Daniel Penamondo, Eliza Rocco, and behind Behind the scenes, you hear their names, and their work is tremendous on this show. Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. No time to thank anybody else other than you for being a part of the show this week. Until Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.